Job. Today we'll look at Job 34. And uh, we are, if you have been following in the series, we are getting closer and closer towards the end, if you could believe it. Um, I, I think when we started, uh, many thought this is going to be, um, you know, a five-year process uh, working through the book of Job because the book of Job is so long, but we have been taking chunks at a time, speeches at a time, and we are in the portion of the book of Job of the last individual, the last mortal, the last human that will speak um, and offer speeches. And there's some things that we want to talk about. It's been, uh, um, I think, three weeks since we were last in the book of Job and we looked at Elihu's, right, his first, um, his first speech. And this is his second. And his second speech, if we could give it, a, I think, a theme, it is about the question of accusing God of unfairness. And, and I think that's something that would resonate with anyone that understands not just Job's suffering and predicament, but any of you, any of us that have gone through some kind of suffering. Maybe not to the level of Job, but when there is pain and there is not a clear and excellent explanation, one of the things that naturally comes to our mind is to ask, man, is God actually fair? Is this fair? And you take Job and his stance, his whole position has been, Lord, this is not fair. I have not sinned in such a way that I deserve this. And when Job's three friends came along, at first they came to comfort him, but then it turned into, Job, we know that you've sinned because there's a, there's a principle of retribution, right? You reap what you sow. So you are currently sowing suffering. You've lost your family. You've lost uh, all of your possessions. You've lost your health. You're nearing close to death. You need to repent of whatever secret sin you've been hiding from us. And Job's whole point is, listen, I'm innocent of any secret sin. I haven't done any of the things that you guys are implying. But his question then becomes, so why is this happening to me? Is God fair? That's, uh, that's probably at the heart of Job's contention. And that's also at the heart of Elihu's, um, his rebuke of Job. We talked about Elihu, and I want to say a couple of things about Elihu so we're reminded. But there's a couple of different ways that we can understand Elihu. This is a young man. He begun, comes on the scene at the end of all the cycles of speeches. Remember, each friend says something, Job responds. Another friend says something, Job responds. Another friend says something, Job responds. And they went through that cycle three times, minus one person didn't respond the final time. All right? And then Elihu, this young guy, comes in and says, you guys are all older than me, and out of respect, I didn't want to jump into the fray, but I am upset. In fact, he says that he has burned with anger against Job because he justified himself rather than God. That was his opening first speech, 32 verse 2. And then he says he burned with anger also against Job's friends because they had found no answer for Job, although he had declared, they had declared Job to be in the wrong. That's, that's in the very next verse, um, uh, Job 32, verse 3. So he enters into the phrase saying that, man, I am steaming with anger about how you guys 
have allowed Job to say what he has said and how you have not given him a sufficient answer to help direct him in a way that would get him back on track to how he should think about God. So the two ways we could think about Elihu is one, he's this young and arrogant interloper that just jumps into the fray and just basically lambasts everybody. And in his pride and arrogance, he just kind of comes in and he disappears. That's one option, and there's, uh, there's a number of excellent scholars through church history who kind of take Elihu as being kind of this weird whippersnapper, angry dude. He comes on, you know, gets mad at everybody, and then he disappears. But there's a second angle that I think is more appropriate for us when we, take, when we consider all of everything that we read in the book of Job and in, in the uh, statements, in the arguments of Elihu, and that he, that he is a prophet of God. That he speaks truth. He, he speaks truth and at times he is kind of strong, somewhat severe. I mean, he's going to be kind of severe here. Uh, towards the end of this chapter, you're going to hear him say, well, Job, until you repent, this is where you need to stay. I mean, that's a lot to say to someone that's suffering, right? To say this suffering is necessary until you figure it out that you're speaking about God in a way that is wrong. That's pretty intense. And so here is Elihu, a prophet of God, sent with the word from the Lord. And in a lot of ways, I compare him to John the Baptist, the, the prophet that prepares before the Lord comes on the scene. The one that speaks to, you need to repent, you need to think better, you need to re-triangulate you know, your, your trajectory in terms of your life and your heart. And then here comes the Lord. There's a, there's a few reasons why I think that. I mean, one is because is, uh, as you're reading um, his arguments, they ring true. And I, I can understand why scholars might lean towards the side of, no, he's just, he's just like the other friends. He's just, he's just lambasting on Job, calling Job a sinner, etc. He does. He does address Job's sin, but he addresses it in a way that's different from his friends. His friends are saying, you are suffering because you sinned. Elihu is saying, you've suffered, but because of suffering, now you're starting to sin. It's a completely different approach and a completely different insight. And like John the Baptist, he comes strong, he comes hard, and then he just kind of leaves the scene. He's prepped away, and it's almost like, I've heralded the Lord, now let me step aside, and after Elihu, God himself will speak. It's interesting to me, and a couple of the reasons why I think that Elihu is in the right, um, at least circumstantially, is because when God comes on the scene and he speaks first to Job, then towards the end of that, he speaks to Job concerning his friends. He tells his three friends that they have spoken wrongly about him, but he doesn't say his four friends. He doesn't include Elihu in that group. He doesn't, he doesn't speak, God doesn't speak against Elihu at all. He doesn't even mention him. As if, of course, John the Baptist has come before me and here I come. Of course he's prepped the way and now here I am. Secondly, we notice that Job himself doesn't give a response. And this is an argument from silence, but think about this. Even as Elihu is suggesting, in particular in this particular chapter, he's suggesting, Job, this is where your attitude has led you to sin. This is where you are wrong and why you need to repent. 
You see, Job doesn't kind of offer something back. He has for every other person that has either accused him or said something to him, he has added into the argument. He has said, no, that's not accurate of me. But it's almost like Job is kind of mulling this over. That he's considering maybe that's accurate. He doesn't enter into the fray. He lets this young man speak. And he gives him the floor. And he doesn't respond. Three speeches... Elohim will make, and Job doesn't, doesn't respond to any of them along the way. Whereas the three speeches, and then the two of Zophar, of, of all of his friends, he responds to every single speech they make. And the final reason that I give you, and again, I, I recognize these are somewhat circumstantial, right? But the final reason is because as we, as we see the argument of Elohim unfold, the amazing thing is that you'll see his arguments and even his wording paralleled when we get to God and God's statements about how he will answer Job. Job's whole concern is, Lord, why don't you show up and why don't you answer me? Why aren't you fair? Why aren't you right? Why aren't you just? And can I just say this so that you don't get confused? When I speak of unfairness or fairness, um, we're speaking in the same category as being right or righteous, right? Is God being right? Is he acting right? Is he acting fair? And is, he, is God acting just? So fair, right, just. We're going to use that a little interchangeably. And uh, we, can, we can be more precise with each of those terms. But we want to use that interchangeably here because that's really the question. Because if you're saying, is God fair in how he's dealt with Job? Is God fair in how he's dealing with you? Right? You're, you're asking a question about his justice, not just his, his, his legal justice, but is he acting just concerning you and the weight of your sins versus the weight of maybe someone else's sins? Is he acting right in terms of, is this right? Is, is this fair? Is this even? Right? All of those things, I think, kind of, kind of work together. And so our, our question um, that Elihu has us um, approach in light of Job's suffering is this question of God's fairness and uh, in, in, right, in the context of this very suffering but righteous man named Job. Let me, let me just pray for us. I'll read this passage as we go on and then um, we will unpack this um, point by point. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for our gathering, for the praise of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Lord, may that echo in our minds as we look to Job's life and recognize that he, he is a good man who has walked by faith, that in the opening chapters of this book, he has demonstrated a life of worship, uh, offering sacrifices regularly, um, implying that he recognizes his sin and his need for God to forgive and to cleanse him of his unrighteousness. He is a good and faithful and godly man, even as uh, as you yourself have affirmed from the very beginning of the book in the, from the throne room and even towards the end. And yet, Lord, he suffers. And it, it is a weighty issue to our souls that good people might suffer alongside those that might deserve it. Help us to understand these things, Lord, in light of who you are. And may this chapter help us to think through that a little bit. And may this, this young and, and, and angry prophet speak to us by speaking to Job 
in things that might be helpful um, for us in the midst of our suffering. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're this is where we're going today. Um, what's eating Job? In other words, let, let's start to define then what is, what is Job's issue? What is his problem? And, and, and we mean more than simply that he's suffering. I mean, we, we've already talked about that, right? And, and we said that if you, before we studied through the book of Job, your understanding of this entire book, right, with so many chapters, um, really essentially comes down to what happens in the first two and the last one, right? He suffers a lot. God restores him. But there's so much to consider in between, and that's where we are in the in-between. We are trying to figure out how to understand all the suffering that's going on. What, what is eating at Job? Not just his suffering, but what is his sin? What is his complaint? And then we're going to answer Job's error, his sin, right? In, in terms of how he's speaking about who God is and what God is obligated to do. And then that finally, and, and number two is really the bulk of it, and then number three, it is, it is a call to repentance for Job. And then if we understand it correctly, probably a call to repentance for us. For us to think rightly about our God and, um, and to recalibrate ourselves constantly to who God is and who we are. So we've talked about Elohim. We talked about um, why I think that he is a prophet of God speaking truth. And then let's talk a little bit about suffering before we jump right in. In the midst of suffering especially unexplained suffering, unexpected suffering, we naturally ask God, why? Lord, why is this happening? Lord, why me? And when the answers do not come in a timely manner, according to what we want to hear, you have one of two choices. One, you can choose to question God, question His justice, His fairness, right? Question His goodness. Is He really good? Question his, 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 his power. Is he in control? You could question or you can turn to trust God. Trust him without prejudice. Meaning you don't require of him to do something in order for you to trust him. To have faith in his past faithfulness and his future promises to be sufficient to supply you with confidence for the present pain. You can have trust, or you can question. And I think Elihu is going to argue that Job, right, he has entered into the realm of questioning. So we begin there. What is eating at Job? What is his problem? What's your problem, bro? His problem, right, um, is that of uh, uh, unintended impiety. I'll explain that out in a little bit. But let's begin here. Elihu, in the second um, speech, he invites us and invites all those that are listening to kind of think about this with a discerning mind, or it might say a discerning palate. This is what he says in verses 1 through 4. Then Elihu answered and said, and, and, and let me just say this, like Job is, uh, the book is, uh, um, is organized in such a way. You know exactly when every speech starts. And that's why I'm saying there are three speeches of Elihu. And it follows the pattern of, of most of the friends. Three speeches, right? And again, Job doesn't answer to any of them. He is silent through them all. And, but this is Elihu beginning his second speech in verse 1. Then verse 2, he says this. 
Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. He calls those of understanding, men of wisdom. And I don't think he's just talking to Job's friends and Job. He is talking to them, but I think he's talking to a greater audience. Anyone that desires to walk in wisdom, he's saying, come and listen and consider this. And this is what he asks them to do. Use your ears to test words like your palate tastes food. The term for palate here is the roof of your mouth. And then I, I guess in our vernacular, we say your tongue, right? As you taste it. So think about this. It's, it's like he compares the hearing, right? And the discerning of words to the tasting of food. I, I, I got to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty excellent at the tasting of food, you know? Like, I, I love that I have a palate to enjoy certain things. And all of you guys do. And some of you guys, you, you have a discriminating palate. There's some things that you don't like. And there's some things that you really like. Right? That, that's how we think of in terms of taste. And the brilliance of combining that, right, as a metaphor, as an illustration, as a parallel to our discernment. You are to train yourself. You know, we talk about like developing a palate for certain things, right? Like I have over the years developed a palate for, for pretty decent, good coffee. I don't, I don't say that I'm certified. Did you know you can get a certification for like being able to taste coffee? Somewhat ridiculous, but you can, right? I'm not, I'm not at that level. I know people that are at that level, but I know what kind of coffee I like. And I, I don't like Folgers. I don't, Right? And, you know, you know the, the Korean restaurant, like the packet of like pre-sweetened instant coffee stuff? Delicious because it's sweet, but the coffee is not that good, right? There are certain coffees that you kind of go, yeah, that's okay, right? And then there's certain coffees that you have to grind and set to a certain ratio, certain grind setting. You pour over slowly. You let it, you let it steep for four minutes, right? And you, and you let it drain out and it makes a delicious black cup of coffee, and for some of the young ones in the room, you think, black coffee, that's, that's horrible. That's like, well, you haven't developed a discerning palate for coffee, right? This is the idea. You have we developed a discerning palate in terms of wisdom, in terms of, in terms of our understanding? Do we use our ears to hear, to think, to evaluate, and to know in a way that leads us constantly towards wisdom? This is what wisdom looks like, right? It, it is like we have developed a taste for what he says in verse 4, for choosing what is right, right? So that we might understand amongst ourselves what is good. Because that's what Job is questioning. Is God right? Is he fair? Is God good? Because Job hasn't done anything in this earthly life that would deserve all of this, this tragedy, this violence, this terrible, right, and horrible reality that's fallen upon him. He doesn't deserve it. And in that sense, he is right. He is right. We'll come back to his right in a bit. But verse 5 and 6, it says, For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Now this is when Elihu brilliantly identifies where Job 
is starting to go astray. He seems to be implying, Job seems to be implying, that he is more right than God. And now listen, Job does not blaspheme God along the way and ever say straight out like, God is wicked. He has sinned against me, right? He is a bad God, bad God. He doesn't do that. What he does, though, is that he implies like, I am in the right, and that's what he says, right? In fact, four statements that, are, uh, that, that clarify his argument and I think rightly summarize what Job has been saying all along. Job says, right, according to the first part of verse 5, I am in the right. He is saying, I am innocent. I haven't done anything that would deserve this amount of suffering. I am in the right. And for the most part, I think we would agree with him. There's nothing in the scriptures that suggests that Job deserved, right, bandits to come and steal all his flock. He didn't, he didn't do anything that deserved a judgment of a, of a wind, right? Breaking a house and killing off all of his children. He didn't deserve busting out in boils and his health failing and him starting to get sick and sickly and fading in terms of his mortal life. He didn't deserve all of he. I am in the right. That's his argument. And that's, there's something that is true about, not something, it is absolutely true that he is right in, in that sense. He says, but this is the second statement he makes in verse 5. And God has taken away my right. See, so I am in the right and God is the one that has come against me. He doesn't say explicitly God is in the wrong, but he's saying that God has taken away what is right, what is just in my life. He says those words literally, Job 13, 18, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. So, so Elihu is not off in terms of his reporting of what Job has said. In Job 27, 2, Job says, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. He puts it on God, that God has caused these things and my right to be taken away. And, and Elihu has caught that. He has a taste for what is wise and what words are true. And he has recognized that Job has spoken. He has spoken right in some sense, but he has spoken wrong in another. Verse 6, a third statement. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. So he is, he is capturing how Job has suggested that even though he is in the right, God is treating me like I'm lying. And so are his friends, by the way. Right? His friends assume that he's lying. The, the, the idea of retribution or retributive justice says that you reap what you sow. Now, now that's the truth, right? It, but if you reap what you sow, then I'm looking at your sowing right now, Job. And that suggests that you have reaped something hidden, something terrible in your past. What is it? And this is what Job means. He's like, I'm right, and yet you have made me, God has made me a liar. The, the circumstances make others think that I am lying, that I've done something wrong, and I haven't. Fourth, his fourth statement in verse 6, the second part, my wound is incurable. This is him, right? This is El, Elihu recognizing what Job has said in his final speeches. He is winding down. He's going to die. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And this, this disease, whatever, this weird supernatural disease, it's going to kill me. So he has summarized Job very accurately. 
And as he summarized Job accurately, he's caught that particular attitude that has been, I don't know, maybe kind of softly hidden in the midst of what Job is saying. His complaint that God is not fair to him. And by implication, right, Elihu is catching on to the fact that Job is implying that he is more right than God is right. That God doesn't have a right. That's the way we would probably say it. He doesn't have a right to cause all this to happen into Job's life, right? Taste what is right, discern. Job complains that he is more right than God. And then this Elihu explaining, you can be right and then turn wrong, right? Verses seven through nine. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men, for he has said it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. <clears throat> These verses are one of the primary reasons why um, a lot of scholars take Elihu as being judgmental, um, just like Job's friends. Having a human justice kind of judgmentalism, a self-righteousness like his other friends. Because it sounds like he, he could be just simply saying Job is like all these evildoers like these wicked men, etc. But I think what he is saying, if we understand it well, is that he is saying, what man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who is taking up mocking or scoffing of the goodness and the justice of God. Eliphaz, right, the first of the three friends, accused Job of making injustice his diet, his food. Elihu, this young um, this young prophet is accusing Job of making scoffing, of mocking God and his character, his drink. So in that, they agree. But where they disagree is whether or not Job was right in the beginning. Elihu is not blasting off on Job because of, because of some sin that is hidden in the past. He's connecting the dots in terms of Job's sinful attitude towards God in the midst of his suffering. When it says in verse 8 and 9 that Job is a man that travels in the company of evildoers and walks with the wicked, I think Elihu is trying to say that it is like someone in terms of his mocking of God, in terms of his scoffing of God, in terms of him turning away from God, in the sense of him saying, well, God has done all this, and I was in the right, and God has put me in the wrong, God has made my soul bitter. When he's saying such things, he's speaking as the foolish people. It's similar to what Job said to wifey, right? Back in Job 2. And when those wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? But Job says to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And he's not saying all women are foolish. He's saying you're speaking like one of the silly ladies, right? That's not the way that we speak about our God. And so at least initially, Job understood that God is God and that Job is not. And as a result of that, he must trust God for everything that comes. But somewhere along the way, while he was right, he began to think wrong. He was right, and then he became wrong. Job is not suffering because he sinned, but now he's starting to sin because he has been suffering. That's what his complaint has resulted in the life of the righteous man, Job. So that's what's eating Job. And so, so how would Eliphaz answer this error? How would he answer this error? And he does it by speaking about who and what God is. 
And so I, I appreciate that. He begins, right, if you look at verses 10 through 15, by talking about how God can't do wrong. He cannot do wrong. Verse 10 says, Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. This is a simple statement where Job is asserting, I mean, Elihu is asserting very clearly that Job, to answer you about how God is unfair to you, let us remind ourselves of who God is. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness or that the Almighty should do what is wrong. Verse 12, that he does no wickedness and that he never perverts justice. To call him unfair is absolutely wrong. He is saying God never does anything that is wrong. Verse 11 makes an interesting statement, right? Because this is, again, the retributive principle. The, 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 the idea of justice being a, a retribution for things that we have done, right? You reap what you sow. And again, that's not wrong. That's true. That's in Scripture. But that's not all that's true. That's the problem. It is not easily applicable to every single moment in life. So that if you're you know, driving here and you get into an accident... You don't immediately go, you know, I can attribute that to not doing my quiet times on my way to church, right? That, right? Like if you get sick, right, you go out to the mall, you get sick, you can say, you know, it's because, it's because I was coveting, right? I was walking by that one store, and I was wanting to buy that particular hat, right? And I wanted it so bad, I thought, Lord, why can't I afford that beautiful hat, that beautiful Los Angeles Dodgers championship hat, right? Why can't I have that? And because of that, right, this bad thing happened. Because of that, I slipped and fell, right? Or what, it's like, it's, that's an in, it's a inappropriate application of an absolute truth. Elihu wants to double down on the fact that God cannot do what is evil, wrong, or unfair, and that retribution comes from God. That the idea there, that even the friends are asserting that is true because of who God is. He is a kind of God that must make things right, that has to balance the scales. That if you sinned here, then you must pay here. And that's a come, no one gets away with their sins. Right? Nobody ever gets away with their sins. In Genesis, it, it speaks of, uh, I'm sorry, in... Uh, um, in uh, Boy, my, my mind is all of a sudden blanking. We'll get back to that later when, when it remembers what, what I was trying to say. But the key reason of why we cannot, right, attribute to God an unfairness or an unrighteousness or he's letting something bad get away or he allows like wickedness to run wild in this world. The reason why is because God never lets anything get away. And to deny that idea that God is absolutely and perfectly just and righteous and fair is to deny him being God, very God. Look at verse 13 through 15. He says, who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? In other words, who was more, more powerful, more righteous, more good, more excellent, so that they gave God authority over the universe? And the answer is no one. He literally has created all things. 
and verse 14, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. It is a number of rhetorical questions, but his, his point is this. The key reason why we cannot, right, uh, we cannot say something like God is wrong or he has done wrong is because that would deny God being very God. The idea of what is righteous and good. The idea of what is just and fair. The very idea has its source and definition in God, very God. Who no one has set above the universe, he just is. Who no one could tell, you need to do this or you need to do that, he just does. In fact, all of human flesh depends upon him living. And it's suggested as the creator... He has a right to do with flesh as he desires. But he won't do it haphazardly. He won't do it just according to whimsy. He's not capricious like all the, you know, the pantheon of gods that are in our mythologies. He is God, very God. God can't do wrong. Secondly, verses 16 to 20, God demonstrates his sovereign justice. God's sovereign justice. Verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this, listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? So he is placing, and, and this is, all of this is a little bit more challenging in terms of understanding and in, interpreting the Hebrew. But I, I think what he's doing here is he is suggesting, can you, can you accuse the one who governs the universe? Remember, that is exactly what he's talked about. The one that governs the universe and gives life and breath to all things alive. And that if he should withhold life, then life would die. Right? The one, the life-giving one, the true one, the source of everything that is, shall that one who governs all things, shall we consider that he might be someone that hates justice, that hates fairness? You see where he's going with this. If we do attribute God to being capricious, then the entire universe is off axis. At any given moment, he might decide, hey, you know what? I'm just going to be cancer of the brain and you have weird thoughts and you do weird stuff, right? And you're like, wait, what? But Lord, I, I've been a follower of you. I don't care. I'm done with you. I don't want you to go to heaven. I blot you out of the book of life. Like, like if he was that unfair, if he was that capricious, he could do whatever he wants. And I think interestingly, right, like if you look at mythologies and the pantheon of gods, they are exactly that. They're capriciousness. They're so humanness, right? Sometimes just, sometimes not. Makes him do all kinds of knuckleheaded things that are part of the reason why the world is in ruin, according to those mythologies, right? Our God is stable, and absolute. And so he's saying, would you, the one that is sovereign and governs life and the universe, are you accusing him of unjust, injustice, of hating justice? Look at the second part of verse 17. Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? He's not just fair, but he's absolutely powerful and in control of all things. He has already asserted that in terms of saying he's the one that gives breath and life, and if he withdraws the spirit, everything would die. And he has a right to do both. Verse 18, Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. See, verse 18, 19 is still talking about God. God says to rulers, authorities, you're, you're worthless, or you're wicked. 
And he can say that because he's absolutely just. If he's not just, how can he call upon some other ruler and say, man, you're not being fair to your, to your people? He can say, well, you're not fair to your people, right? Like we're all in the same boat. But God is fair to his people. He's perfectly righteous and just. And that's why he can call out rulers that are not. And so verse 20, here's the retributive principle. In a moment they die. Now notice, it doesn't say in that moment they die. It's saying that their dying can come suddenly. Because the one that has given them the spirit of life can pull that back. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away. And the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Who brings justice finally to wicked princes, to wicked, wicked rulers, to those that oppress the poor? Who brings that justice upon them? God does. If at nothing else, we could say this. There are evil men, right, who are in offices, right, through the history of the world. Evil men who are tyrants, dictators, and have done wicked things to people. They will all die. They will all die. They are, they are not going to rule forever. None of them are immortal. God will always have the last say. And God who judges without favoritism, God who judges without fail, he will determine their end as he always does. See, that's the true retributive principle that God, right, he causes all to reap what they sow. He, he doesn't promise it in a particular timely fashion, but he promises that no one gets away with anything. You may be here in this room enjoying kind of, you know, the outward appearance of godliness. And you know that you have secret sin. You know you have some thing, some dark secret thing that you are keeping, right, from everyone and maybe even thinking that God doesn't, God does know. And unless you repent, God requires payment for every sin. This is what it means that God is perfectly just. Because perfect justice doesn't mean, you know, he looks at your sin and he goes, dude, you, you be careful. You might have to pay an eternal price for that. And they look at Nam's sin and he goes, Nam, I like Nam. You know, wink, wink. You're okay, dude. You're okay. We're going to let that slide. That is not justice. Justice is someone has to pay for every sin. And that's why we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's either me paying for my sins or Christ paying for my sins. It's either you paying for your sins in full or Christ paying for your sins in full. This is what it means that God is righteous and just and fair. Nothing escapes the judgment of God. So, if we get back to this, he's answering Job's error of saying, well, God's not fair, at least to me, because I'm in the right, and he's taking away my right. And he's saying, listen, God's sovereign justice means that no one gets away with anything, and everything is paid in full for good or for wickedness. Third, he says, God is the all-seeing judge. God's all-seeing justice in verses 21 through 25. It says, for his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. Right? They can't, they can't hide as if God can't see. God sees everything, the ways, meaning his paths, every step he takes, every place he has been. He sees all of his steps. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Verse 23, for God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before, uh, that he should go before God in judgment. Right? This, verse 23 is interesting. He's saying God doesn't need to, 
to kind of, you know, consider. He doesn't have to take your life and then kind of go, okay, wait, let me think. Like, Nam did mostly good, right? Isn't this the argument you get from many of our non-Christian friends, right? Well, mostly good versus some bad. And so I'm, I think I'm going to lean towards mostly good and, and kind of give him grace. That's not the way that God works. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows your every sin. He knows the sins that you're about to commit. And yet Christ can pay for all of that in full. See, his all-seeing justice means that, that he doesn't even need to take time to consider this matter further. No one needs to come before him in the court because he already knows if they're guilty or if they're righteous. Verse 24, he shatters the mighty without investigation, not because he's unjust, but because he already knows. And he sets others in their place. Verse 25, thus knowing their works, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. You see what what Elihu is trying to establish is, is, is he's trying to tell Job, Job, like you know that God is just. But your concept of God's justice is too small. Job's friends, you are recognizing that God, right, he has a retributive um, element to his justice. You, right, you reap what you sow, but your concept is too narrow. And so he's expanding that out. He's saying you have to develop a taste for something that is wiser, that is deeper, that is more brilliantly true from what God has revealed. God is the God that can change times and seasons according to Daniel 2, right? He is the kind of God that cannot be deceived or mocked. That's Galatians 6, 7 was the verse I was trying to think of. And I don't know why, but my, my, my mind was, uh, you know, was glitching and I kept thinking Genesis. And I know it's not Genesis, so I don't want to say Genesis. It's Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. See, that, that principle is true. You don't get away with anything. You can get away with things in, in terms of human beings and our lack of knowledge, but God knows. So get your stuff right before the living God because he has an all-seeing eye for justice, right? I'm trying to move quickly. God's unfailing justice in verses 26 through 30. Not only is his justice right, um, sovereign, all-seeing, his justice is unfailing. It always strikes. Verse 26, he strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see. Uh, it's an interesting statement because Elihu seems to imply that not only will God strike them for the wickedness, but it would be public. God will go public with their sinfulness. What they have hidden, what they have, have kept in the dark and tried to, to, to hide in the gloom, God will reveal. Verse 27, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. They turned aside from God. They no longer regarded him. And they still talk like God is significant and important and religion is good. His whole point is you can't have both. A God that is so kind of out of it that he's going to let stuff go and doesn't know what's going on and then declare him righteous. He's saying if he's righteous, he is a God-like, omnipotently, God, you know, godly, Godward righteous. He knows all and he lets nothing escape his justice. They turned aside for following him. Their version of God is a smaller God. 
their regard for God's ways is simply the things that look right on the outside. Verse 28, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. So verse 28 implies in particular these rulers that Elihu is talking about, that as they sin, God would come against their sin. If you want to read about like the wickedness of rulers, even in the nation of Israel, Amos 2 and Amos 8, talks about um, the selling and buying of, um, of the citizens of Israel for silver or for sandals. You're, you're selling the poor for sandals. You're selling them for a little bit of silver. And that kind of wickedness happens even amongst the people that are supposed to be the nation of God. How, how wrong for them, but how wrong for us right? That as we call ourselves Christians, as we rely on his grace, we might take that grace and live as if God doesn't care. Absolutely he cares. Every sin we commit, right, is placed on and it has to be paid in full by Jesus, our Savior. It, God doesn't kind of wink, wink and say, well, you said a prayer once at that retreat, remember? You threw that cone in a fire or, you know, or you wrote your sins on a paper and threw it in a in the trash, I don't know, whatever kind of thing. Like you might think, okay, I'm done, I'm set because I've done that thing. But that action is not what saved you. It's your faith in a God who is all-seeing and absolutely righteous. And the only way that he could rescue you is to send his son to pay for your pay, pay the payment of your sins in full. In full needs to be underlined in your minds. God doesn't kind of generally cover you. And hope that you do the best you can. No, he demands full payment for every sin. And either you must pay it or his son can pay it if you'll repent and turn to him. And that's the last thing we want to cover, right? What's eating at Job? What is his complaint? I think he's kind of elucidated that. Um, He answers Job's error by talking about who God is and what his righteousness, his fairness actually looks like. And then he calls Job to repent. And he's going to say two things. He's going to talk about repentance in a way I think is excellent in verses 31 through 33. And he's going to talk about the consequence of if you don't repent in verses 34 to 37. But in 31 to 33, he says this. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done inequity, I will do it no more. I love it. In other words, if, if, he, if, if you leave it to Elihu and he is trying to, to craft the sinner's prayer, it would go something like this, right? It needs to be verbal. He needs to speak it out. He can't say, oh, I kind of had this general feeling at some point. He needs to speak out what he deserves. I have borne punishment. That phrase means that I recognize that I deserve punishment. Recognizes a sin. He recognizes that his offense requires justice. And he promises, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. I I may not even see all of my sin. I recognize the depth of my sinfulness. And as I recognize the depth of my sinfulness, if I have done inequity, I will do no more. I will turn from what you reveal to be my sin. I will speak out my sin. I will seek forgiveness. I will abandon my sin. This is what it means to repent, to turn 180 degrees away from what is sin towards those things that are the Lord's. 
I love the NIV translation of that. He says, suppose someone says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. An excellent prayer of repentance. And so Elohim is saying, has, has anyone done that? Implying, Job, Job, have you done that? Right? Friends who are accusing Job of a sin that he has not committed, have you done that? Right? Have you turned away from your self-righteousness, right? And turned to God and God alone in repentance. Verse 33 is wickedly difficult to interpret. And, and this is, I think the NIV has it the best. So let me read you the NIV. And as you look at your ESV, let, let your mind recalibrate what that says. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. As well stated. In other words, verse 33 is speaking of the idea, right, of are you expecting a repayment? Are you expecting God to kind of restore you, to give you a reward on your terms? That's exactly what Job is doing. God, you haven't been fair. You kind of owe me at least a hearing. You need to show up, and you need to tell me face to face why you are doing this, right? He is demanding these on his terms, and he's saying, should God give you what you demand on your terms when you refuse to recognize your sin. That you are treating God as if He is unjust. And He has has broken down all these reasons for saying that God is never unjust. He's incapable of injustice. And if anything, we deserve worse than what we're getting. Right? Well, what's the consequence? He says, men of understanding, and so now He bronze it out to everyone. Anyone that will walk with wisdom... And wise men who hear me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. He's saying, okay, so if you develop this taste for wisdom that we talked about in the beginning, as you listen to Job's words and you examine them, you will come out on the other side thinking this, Job speaks without knowledge and his words are without insight. You know what's funny? These are exactly the words of God when he shows up to answer Job in Job 38, 1 and 2. Listen. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Elihu is speaking the same terms that Job speaks without knowledge as God will say when he shows up and says, Job speaks without knowledge. Verse 36 and 30. Would that Job were tried to the end This is an interesting statement. Um, I take this as a malediction. He is saying, let Job be tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu has accused Job of mocking God, of accusing God of things that God is not, of being unfair, of not knowing of not being willing to show up and to declare why he has done everything. And in the end, Elihu is saying, you need to repent, Job. You need to speak out your sin and turn from it. You need to see who God is and recognize that you do not have a right to speak of God this way. But if you do not, this malediction, it's like an like a, like a imprecation or, or, or a curse, right? He says, if you will not repent, Job, then let Job be tried to the end 
let this trial take him to the grave. Because he answers like wicked men. He speaks like, like right? his words are ascribing to God the things that wicked men ascribe to God. He's adding rebellion. He's clapping his hands among us. I think, I think he's trying to say that, you know, he's, he's kind of rebelliously like stopping us by clapping and, and stop, trying to stop our arguments. He's just argumentative and multiplies his words against God. And this is what we mean by Elihu being somewhat severe. Him demonstrating um, indignation in a way that can be off-putting or even uncomfortable. He speaks loudly about Job's sin and the consequence of not repenting. But if you catch the flavor of 34, right, it is both hope and truth. He, he's not saying that Job was a sinner from the get-go. No, he would agree with Job. Job, you were right. You hadn't done anything wrong to deserve this. But here's where you are starting to go wrong. The suffering is making you think that God owes you more. That he is unrighteous in the way that he's dealing with you. This is God. Not your local mayor. This is the living God who has a right to all things. And he is perfectly and absolutely just. And he repays all according to what they have sown. No one gets away with anything. And the Lord knows with compassion those that are his. And see, Job hasn't seen it, but we have. From the opening chapters, right? God has declared Job blameless and upright, right? And is a man that will walk with God no matter what. And through it all, though his attitude can wander, he is repentant. And he walks with the Lord. And he ascribes to God all these things that Elihu had said. If you buy my argument, I, I think it's true. The reason why Job doesn't respond to Elihu and contradict the things that he has said is because he probably hears that and started to sense that this is true. His heart is being prepared to hear from God himself and to repent in dust and ashes. That's us too. To recognize where we are thinking wrongly about our God and then repenting, right? Recalibrating our thinking about who God is and what we are requiring of him. He is our God, we are not his. And we need to bow the knee, repent, and turn to Christ for salvation and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of the book of Job. Lord, would you tune our hearts, Lord, indeed, to understand wisdom, to develop a taste, Lord, uh, a discerning palate for that which is good and excellent. And may it begin always with who you are. So that when we think of who you are, that recalibrates us to rightly interpret the things that are happening. We don't, we don't know why things happen all too frequently. But Father, we will in repentance recognize that that is our place as the limited creature, not the, the infinitely wise and immortal God. So Lord, help us to keep you in your place, to re repent of our sinfulness, and look to our God for salvation, life, and truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.